This is an ABC podcast. Isolating me, locking me in rooms, locking me out of the house, threatened with sort of knives, breaking furniture and property. It was very, very extreme. This isn't a form of family violence that we hear a lot about and that people feel comfortable to talk about. And I think in that respect, it really reminds me of intimate partner violence two, three decades ago. A lot of people who are experiencing adolescent family violence felt like they were the only ones, that they were on their own. I'm Anita Barrow, and today on The Law Report, we're opening the door on violence in the home. Not from your partner, but from your child. And a warning, some of the contents of this program may upset some listeners. It might be against parents, siblings, carers or any other members of the family and it can involve violence from the age of as young as 10 years old up to 18 or 24, 25. The definitions of what's included are quite varied. And do we know how many families are are suffering this kind of violent or controlling behaviour from their kids? We don't have any exact figures, unfortunately. What we do know is that it is extremely underreported. The Royal Commission in Victoria concluded that adolescent family violence was approximately one in 10 incidents of family violence. And that ties in with some recent stats from New South Wales as well. And from Queensland. And what we do know is that of those families that end up showing up in hospital data or in police data are really the tip of the iceberg. So what can parents do and are our social and legal responses adequate? Dr Kate Fitzgibbon is a criminologist from Monash University. She and her colleagues are investigating family violence committed by adolescents. Key in her research was a survey with 120 parents, carers and siblings, and also with health professionals. What we found was that the violence was predominantly from young males in the home towards their mothers. And in that respect, we really saw it play out in a similar gendered way to other forms of family violence. And it could involve verbal abuse, coercive and controlling behaviours, financial abuse, and then also stalking, physical abuse, and also property damage. And what were the impacts on that kind of family violence? We found the impacts of it were incredibly significant and they were really affecting all aspects of these families' lives. And something we heard from multiple people who responded to our surveys was that daily life is like walking on eggshells. And one woman even described it as living in a war zone, living in fear, social isolation because of not wanting to either have people over to the house because it was such an unpredictable environment or to go out because they felt like they had to be at home looking after everyone and maintaining the safety of the home. Also, things like the economic, physical and emotional impacts, property damage. We had several women who described no longer fixing up damage around the home because it would just happen again and again. And really, the intense shame, I think, was one of the common things that came out across so many of our participants that... They didn't know who to speak to. They didn't know where to seek help. And this feeling that they must be a bad mother or they had done something wrong and that's why they were experiencing this violence from one of their children. And because some people would say, oh, they're teenagers, they're just acting out, it's that's just normal. And I think that's a really important point because what we found is that a lot of people find it really hard to know at what point 
does this become adolescent family violence and at what point is it just tricky adolescent behaviour? You know, lots of people have experienced that, adolescents that push the boundaries, but at what point that tips over and becomes something more serious and actually incidents of family violence is really hard for parents to know and I think it's why we need to have a much greater awareness and supports for families out there. Dr Kate Fitzgibbon. A mother, let's call her Heather, is just emerging from a nightmare of extreme violence from her once sweet little boy. Heather's voice has been changed. It started when he was about 15. That happened over a period of months and then it became quite extreme um, to the point where police were phoned by neighbours holding me down by my wrists and screaming, locking me in rooms, locking me out of the house, threatened with sort of knives, breaking furniture and held up against the wall. Very, very frightening and even carpet burns and being dragged along. It was very, very extreme. And even when you were in the car driving, I believe. Yeah, so I was getting punched in the arm quite frequently. Very dangerous, and I'd often threaten to, to stop at the police station, and there were many times I did. Yeah, that was, that was very dangerous. And you say it started around when he was 15. What was he like before? What was he like as a little boy? Yeah, very, very sweet. Always, always had a beautiful relationship, very close. There was nothing like that. And do you have any kind of inkling as to why this happened? Um, I think it's a combination of things. He does have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Um, I don't think that was the only thing, though. There was a complex family situation at the time, also just coping with the changes of adolescence. Everything became heightened, so I think that it was a whole collection of things, really. You mentioned that neighbours called police. Mm -hmm. Did you carry through with police? I mean, was he charged? I did. They were actually the first time they came out. They were amazing. Um, and one of the policemen actually had a, a son with autism. So he spoke to my son and they actually brought in a family liaison officer. So they were really, really helpful. We discussed pressing charges or doing an intervention order. But at that stage, I didn't think that would be helpful. But they did um, get me in touch with other services. Now, you were telling me earlier that this did take a long time and it really was becoming quite desperate before you sought help. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Because you feel very protected as a child. There's a shame there, I think, as well. It's a hard thing to discuss. Very hard to sort of face what's going on. I imagine there were times when you felt absolute despair. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because there were so many ways I tried to stop it, but there was just no way. There just nothing was changing and it was escalating. So eventually the services I got in place did help and also recommended that we separate for a while and, and they made it very clear that it wasn't my fault and I started having one-on-one counselling and then I did a course in adolescent violence where just parents attend and that was really very, very helpful. And when you say your son is on the autism spectrum, what is his level of understanding about his actions and the consequences of his actions? Um, 
that took time. I think he didn't realise. I remember the policeman the first time, you know, going through the seriousness of it to him and afterwards him saying to me, oh, it was like I was going to, to murder you. And so I don't think he did. He didn't have any idea of how close it was, the violence, that there was a fine line there, that how it could have really tipped over into something really, really serious. There are many common threads between Heather's story and the experiences of the parents and siblings who responded to the Monash University survey headed by Kate Fitzgibbon. We heard from mothers that had quit their jobs to just maintain the safety around the home. We heard from siblings that said that while the violence wasn't directed at them and they weren't impacted by it, they felt like they had lost their parent because the parents had to be so focused on that abusive child. And I think there was one parent that sent their other children to boarding school to get them away. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a decision they're making to try and keep everybody safe. And you can't imagine how you balance up and make that decision as a parent. But, you know, you had parents describing, and we had one describing being hit with lumps of wood, having heavy objects thrown at her, damage to the car, holes in the wall, others that reported pushing over furniture, violence directed towards animals in the family, blocking and shutting doors, so really using the day-to-day moments around the house to perpetrate violence. And again and again, and I think this is globally, a big proportion of these young people who carry out violence against their parents, and it's usually the mother, have experienced family violence or witnessed family violence. Yes, so we certainly found that in some of the stories that we heard that women described having had an abusive male partner maybe the children's father, but also maybe not, and that in some cases once that partner left the home, the adolescent stepped into the position. And I think we see there, you know, the really horrible effects of intergenerational violence where people are growing up in homes where violence is normalised and where they think that that's the role they need to step into. And what about other issues around developmental disorders, learning disorders, things such as ADHD or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, uh, mental health issues, acquired brain injury? Are they also part of the profile of a child who, who can be violent against their family members? The research across Australia, particularly around acquired brain injury, certainly points to the link between that and family violence. So we'd be naive to think that it isn't playing out in this space as well. But there was a lot of stories of children with autism, with ADHD, with complex needs, with a disability, a mental illness. And that really compounded the difficulty that these families had in terms of seeking help because We don't yet have broad, specialised responses to adolescent family violence on offer. These families would try and seek help through a disability service, but they would say that they can't deal with the violence or they might try to seek help through a mental health service, but they too wouldn't be able to deal with the violence. So the complex needs really muddied the picture in terms of what was happening and how that adolescent was behaving, but also in terms of that family's ability to seek help. And what about police? What happens if if the police are called out? In those cases, it's interesting because across Australia, we have some differences in how police can respond. In Victoria, police can take out an intervention order. 
against the child on behalf of the parent, whereas in a jurisdiction such as Queensland, they're not able to. And Tasmania, I think, too. Tasmania as well. It doesn't cover parent-child relationship. But our experience of what we heard in Victoria was that intervention orders was quite a tricky response because parents often didn't want that to proceed later they didn't report breaches and an adolescent might quite quickly learn that there wasn't going to be any consequences if they did breach it. But we've heard cases where the police interaction was nuanced, where the police understood the type of violence they were responding to and that that was an effective circuit breaker. We also, on the flip side, heard of police responses that were heavy-handed, that failed to understand the nature of adolescent family violence And in one case where a woman had called to report her son and the police actually arrived and took away her husband who was protecting her. So certainly what that highlights is the need for specialist training of police so that they do adequately understand adolescent family violence. But we did hear from a lot of families that the interactions with the police, they were very hesitant against because at the end of the day, it's their child and they didn't want to criminalise them. And that is the issue, isn't it? They don't want their children getting caught up in the criminal justice system because what happens if they do get caught up in the criminal justice system? I mean, we know all research says that children who enter the criminal justice system have a lifelong impact from that. Parents were aware of that. They were aware of the stigma of a child entering the criminal justice system and the impact that that might have on their education on their later career prospects. So parents were protective as much as they were also being victimised by that adolescent. There is a general feeling that you want to keep it away from the criminal justice system, but a visiting judge at the moment, Judge Eugene Hyman, started the first ever juvenile family violence court in the US in in Santa Clara County. Are you aware of that initiative? Yes, I think there is merit to that argument and that there is always going to be a small cohort of adolescents who are using violence in a severe way or a sustained way where criminal justice intervention is unavoidable. And in that respect, you know, we really need to think about what are the most effective responses there and things like a juvenile court, trying to divert them away from the adult criminal justice system are, of course, things that we should consider. But the hope being that that will only ever be for a very small cohort. Dr Kate Fitzgibbon, a criminologist from Monash University. This is The Law Report on RN, online and on Channel 26 on your TV. Anita Barrow with you. Eugene Hyman is a Superior Court judge from California. He's now retired. 20 years ago, he pioneered the very first specialist juvenile family violence court. He found that more than half the teenagers charged with abusing their parents had experienced or witnessed violence in their home and he wanted to stop this cycle. Judge Hyman also noticed that when cases came before the courts, little was done. Usually the young offender was charged with minor assault, admonished by the judge and told to go home and be nice to your mum. In contrast, the Juvenile Family Violence Court engages with the family and young offender for up to three years. If they are found to have committed an act of domestic violence, then they go to an intervention program, they're placed on probation, they're supervised, they are made to attend a program. Victims receive services, so hopefully they don't go back to a a bad relationship. So how often does the judge see them during this probation period? In the beginning, it's every month. It depends upon how they're doing. 
then it would be spaced out a little bit further. So it could be every couple of months. So the judge would get to know those those oh, juveniles absolutely. really, really well absolutely. over two or three it, years. It, it would be very hands-on, absolutely. And also you get reports from probation, you get reports from the program, and the program uh, also talks to the victim to get the victim's perspective in terms of how uh, the person is doing, assuming that the victim wants to continue the relationship with the person that each case is obviously um, very individual. And Can you give you me monitor. an example, perhaps? Yeah, let's say hypothetically uh, you've got a, uh, a, a juvenile. Let's say that the, the, the violence was serious enough that they had to go to a rehabilitation ranch. The program lasts a couple of months. They get out of the program. They're also going to a batter's intervention program once a week for 26 weeks. That program is teaching them about how to live a violence-free, controlling-free life. Maybe they have substance abuse issues, so they're going to that program as well, like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and um, they might be going to some kind of a relationship program. You say it's common that the child or the juvenile has already experienced family violence themselves, but what about other issues like cognitive or learning disabilities, mental health, acquired brain injury even? Are these factors? Yes. Um, probably approximately 50% of juveniles that are in the juvenile justice system are dealing with some type of learning disability. That can be everything from ADD, ADHD, a small percentage experience dyslexia, uh, a very smaller percentage of them might have some type of mental health problem, and a certain percentage will be autistic uh, or on the spectrum. Yes, and um, we're getting better at identifying that, but we still have a long ways to go because not all teachers have uh, received that kind of training to identify and uh, that kind of identification and that kind of intervention is extremely expensive. When we don't identify all of those uh, kids and don't assist them, that's when it gets ultimately expensive because they act out and cause other kinds of problems. And is this a felony charge when that child or adolescent young person comes before the judge? Is that case sealed? Because many people would say taking a criminal justice approach may hurt them in the long run. The very nature of brushing with the criminal justice system. Well, you, you raise a very important and very difficult question. It depends upon the seriousness uh, of the crime. Um, if we're talking about very serious injuries, then regrettably it's going to be filed on and regrettably it's going to be uh, indictable. And regrettably, uh, while the record will be sealed, juvenile records are usually sealed, but in the day and age of the internet, is anything really sealed? So, yeah, it's problematic. There's no question about it. On the other hand, if it isn't as serious, then there is a chance uh, of it being dealt with more informally. And, of course, you, I suppose you're talking here about parents and families at the end of their tether. This is the really pointy end of family violence where it ends up uh, under court supervision. Uh, absolutely. Heather, do you think 
sometimes we need perhaps a more formal approach, perhaps even through the criminal justice system? It's a really difficult one. In my situation, I did discuss it with the police and we both came to the conclusion that he wouldn't have learned and it just would have would have gone down the path of pressing charges because I don't think he would have understood the situation of an intervention order. But I know for other people that did work for them to put an intervention order in place. So it's a really hard one to do and I think every situation's different and it's very hard for a parent to follow through on that and um, make that decision really very hard. Heather and before her retired Californian judge Eugene Hyman. He was speaking via Skype just before he heads to Melbourne for a brain injury conference to be held on the last weekend of October. Now, there are court interventions here in Australia, many that involve that whole-of-family approach. In Victoria, for example, a pilot program in the Children's Court called Restore has been just one of a number of new initiatives arising out of the 2016 Family Violence Royal Commission. A major review of that pilot is due by the end of the year. And there are innovative support programs too, right across Australia. But as we've heard, they can be difficult to access, especially if the family and child involved have other complicated family and health needs. Joe Howard is a family violence consultant and trainer in Melbourne who's been working in adolescent family violence for over 25 years. For her, the overwhelming issue is trying to restore respect in the family. Uh, One of the mothers that I worked with, I'll call her Maria, had a son, Tom. And Maria had actually two other children as well. She had left Tom's father, who had been abusive and violent, and it was now at a point where she was very clear she wasn't going to return to that relationship. But Tom's father was continuing to see the children and would encourage the children to disrespect their mum, to not listen to her. He would tell them she was stupid. What did she know? Tom, when I met with him, actually had very pejorative and negative attitudes about his mother. He was 15, so he was right in the middle of adolescence. And Tom's mother, Maria, would actually say Tom was using exactly the same language and the insults and the derogatory comments to her that, Tom's father had also used to her. So it was very much that Tom was following in his father's footsteps. And as well as that, he was very angry and confused and upset. He wasn't sure about his loyalties to his mother or his father's, to his siblings. You know, he was going through adolescence. There was a lot going on for him. What kind of violence are we talking about here? So in Maria's case, the violence was emotional. There were a lot of derogatory insults, uh, psychological abuse, mind mind games. And so how did you try to address those issues? (laughs) We spoke about parenting children after family violence, so what Tom might have experienced and how she could both support him but also consider her parenting and not feeling that she had to give in to his demand, to feel that she had rights as a parent as well as being the protector and nurturer of her children. And I really needed to focus on him about the sort of relationship he wanted with his mum. So really explore the dual feelings that he had towards his mother because he actually both loved her and felt blaming of her 
because of the relationship with his father ending. And ultimately it was about him thinking about the decisions he could make for his life, about the relationships he wanted with families, about the person he wanted to be, about the person, the man he wanted to be. I guess the hardest thing with him was also that in doing that, he had to actually recognise his mother as the parent and that parenting role. And instead of pushing against her and using threats or abuse, to actually accept her responsibility as a parent. Basic respect. Yes, respect for his mother, yes. Joe Howard, who along with researchers like Kate Fitzgibbon, wants to open the door wide on this form of family violence. This isn't a form of family violence that we hear a lot about and that people feel comfortable to talk about. And I think in that respect, it really reminds me of intimate partner violence two, three decades ago, where women were suffering in silence, where they felt like they were a bad partner, a bad wife, that they had done something wrong. And here we have mothers reporting the same thing, that if their child's abusive towards them, it must be a reflection on them, a judgment of their parenting. And so I think it is incredibly important that we break down that stigma, that we open the doors, that we talk more about adolescent family violence so that families experiencing this know they're not alone. And most importantly, if they're not alone, that we make sure that there's supports for them, that there's effective responses, that if they reach out, they do get help. What we have at the moment isn't effective and it's not enough. So we need to build more responses. And there's some really great trials underway certainly in Victoria and Queensland, where I'm most familiar with the research, but around Australia. So we need to make sure that governments are prioritising that and that we're funding this because this is a really harmful form of family violence. In early December, leading practitioners, including Joe Howard, Dr Kate Fitzgibbon and other Australian and international researchers, are gathering in Melbourne to examine legal and social responses to adolescent family violence. I'll put details on the Law Report homepage. Now, while it's not perfect, things are improving for Heather and her son, who's now back home with his mum. It's going, it's going well. It's going a lot better, so the best thing to do was to put a, a breaker there and uh, um, things are much more settled. I learnt a lot through the course as well to the, the sort of different areas of escalation um, and when it's in the very high level of escalation, the child won't hear anything you're saying and um, you've really got to put a, put a plan in place. So you learnt strategies. What about him? Did he get help? Not particularly, but I think it was very frightening that he didn't live with me for that period of time. So I think that in itself um, and other areas in his life settled, which also helped. And I think he did begin to understand his emotions more as well. It didn't happen overnight. This is often a very sort of secret story about families and it's across all kinds of families. If people in a situation such as yours are listening to this, what advice would you give them? I did find when you're going through violence like that, your brain gets really affected in your mind and and you actually... You sort of stop socialising quite a bit as well. You become quite withdrawn, really, is the word. 
So I think it's very, very important to talk. Very important. And you, and you feel very much for your child. So you don't want to get your child into trouble either. You don't want to shame your child. And, and shaming your child really doesn't help either. So um, to get the right supports in and, and, and for it to be uh, discussed more out there would be a great thing for sure. And Heather has great hopes for her son's future. The message there is if you're coping with an abusive child, you are not alone. If you need help, contact 1800RESPECT, that's 1800 737 732, or Lifeline on 131114. They're good places to start. That's the Law Report. Thanks to producer Verica Jokic and sound engineer Matt Sigley. I'm Anita Barrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.